This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. It's the holiday season, and with the new year coming up, everyone is reflecting on the highlights from their past year. Here at WWNO and WRKF, we wanted to do the same thing by revisiting some of our favorite stories and giving you a little bit of information on how they came together. For more, we're joined by Louisiana Considered's Alana Schreiber. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Diane. Alana, what are some of the stories from the past year that really stuck out to you? Well, one that immediately comes to mind is the interview that you did with Michael Williams, the executive producer of Queer Eye, about the show's new upcoming season in New Orleans. Yes, that interview was a lot of fun. I remember when you first came to me with that story. I wasn't totally sure what Queer Eye was, but I learned a lot talking to Michael. (laughs) That's great. Well, what are some of the main things that you took away from that conversation? Well, some reality TV shows that are focused on a makeover can be really critical of the contestants, but not on Queer Eye. They really celebrate all of the individuals on that show and even call them heroes. The Fab Five aren't there to judge you or change you. Mainly, they just want to boost your confidence. Exactly. And I loved when you and Michael talked a little bit about the history of the show. In the original version on the Oxygen Network, it was called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. But in the Netflix reboot, they changed it just to Queer Eye because not all the heroes are straight guys. Absolutely. And speaking of the heroes, I'm excited to announce that ahead of the premiere of the new season next summer, we will be interviewing some of them on Louisiana Considered. They're going to tell us all about their experience on the show. That is really exciting. But I understand that the new season will also include a familiar face. That's right. While you were busy interviewing the executive producer, I actually got to be an extra in an episode. Completely by coincidence, my neighbor was a production assistant on the show and they needed some extras in the opening credits scene. So I got to dance down Bourbon Street with the Fab Five. Bobby even threw me some beads and I still have them on my bookshelf. (laughs) We will definitely have to keep an eye out for that. And on that note, I think it's time we give this Queer Eye conversation a second listen. We are joined by Scout Productions executive producer Michael Williams. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having us. For anyone who doesn't know, explain the show to us a little bit more. We have what we call our Fab Five representatives from uh, fashion, grooming, culture, food and wine, interior design. And we go in and get our heroes, someone who needs some help some way, whether it's just one of these categories, all these categories, whether they're prepping for an event, working on a relationship, or just have been a rut and need that little push, that little juice to get them going in life. And that's the whole part of casting that's interesting. It's like there's always, we call it the why. What is the why? There are a lot of great candidates, but why now? How are we really going to help and do they really need the help? And tell us a little bit more about the cast. Who are the Fab Five? We have Jonathan Van Ness, who is our grooming expert. Uh, he used to have a podcast called The Gay of Thrones. He has been terrific. He just he's very, very successful. He has a whole product line out now. Karamo Brown, 
uh, is our culture man who now is going to have his own talk show starting next fall. Uh, Anthony Porowski is our food expert who has cookbooks and restaurants. Ken France, our fabulous, fabulous fashion guy who is also the host of another Netflix show, and Bobby Burke, who is our great interior designer. And they are really the fab five. We really enjoyed it. And going into our seventh season is just terrific. And it's kind of rare for a streaming show to be going seven seasons. Now, of course, each week the Fab Five work with a local hero. I'm wondering, why do you refer to these locals as heroes? Well, that's just a term I think we've, in reality TV, we've always used as our central focus on any other reality show that we've done where it's a makeover show. In this case, we call it a make-better show. We just call them the heroes. So take us back to 2018. Who made the decision to reboot Queer Eye, and and why? My partner, David Collins, who created the show, uh, we've always wanted to bring it back. Unfortunately, pre-streaming days, the show was so identified with Bravo, the network Bravo, who we had a great experience with. It was so identified with them that no other network really wanted to pick it up. But then what happened over the years is streaming networks came in, and what they were doing is repeating shows and showing shows that were on another network, and it didn't really matter what network they originated from. So we went to Netflix and just, you know, pitched them the idea of bringing it back, and they took a bite. We were their first really unscripted show that they started with, and we luckily hit it out of the ballpark just like we did uh, in 2004 with the original show. The original show was my company, Scout Productions, that first entry into reality TV. So uh, we said, oh, let's give reality TV a try. Let's come up with a show where I was it, and here we are today still, still doing it. Yeah. What were producers hoping to accomplish in this season that was different from the original? Well, one, being on a streaming network without commercials, uh, you could, the story could go on longer. We, you know, with linear television, there's commercial breaks and there are little act breaks that you have to go and then repeat it again. And it sort of gave us more time to fully tell the story to really get to know the Fab Five a lot more. In the original show, we really didn't. We stayed away from their personal lives. We just didn't have the time. So now we can find out who they are. They get to spend more time with our hero, with each other. Uh, and, and that's what, what's great. And it's uncensored, not that we swear a lot or anything, but it's, they can just talk about anything. It's been terrific. And we also, from the original show, the original title was Square to the Straight Guy, but we always did straight men. Later in the season on Bravo, we took away the straight guy, but we sort of we did stay with men. And when we started with Netflix, we're with everybody, all age groups, men, women, gay, lesbian, trans. We did two trans episodes, so it's all embracing. We are speaking with Michael Williams, Scout Productions executive producer of the Netflix show Queer Eye. This next season is going to be in New Orleans. As you begin production in this city, who are you looking to cast as heroes here? First of all, we do take the uh, the typical, you know, what is New Orleans known for? So let's tackle all those areas, you know, from food, uh, jazz, gospel, 
Creole cuisine. Let's let's tackle all those Hurricane Katrina. There are people who have stories of the aftermath of that. Uh, Bourbon Street. Is there some second line dancer? Pro sports. Swamp and Bayou sports. We just think of all the typical and look for stories. And then we just also find just regular people who may not fit in there. Uh, We don't want to make it so stereotypical New Orleans, but we do like to get cast into those buckets at first. And we've had some good luck. We do have a street performer um, that we're talking to and a lot of other great people, a lot of food people. It's been really fun. And what do you see for the future of the show? Hopefully it keeps going. We are lucky that our numbers keep going up, and that's why we keep getting picked up. We won our fourth Emmy last year for uh, Best Structured Reality Show. Hopefully we'll be nominated in a few weeks for our fifth. And if we win our fifth Emmy, we will beat the record for that category and beat Shark Tank. Wow. (laughs) That's always always a lot of fun, but I know the cast would like to keep doing it. It's... uh, is great exposure, and it's fun to travel to various cities. You know, we Our first two seasons were in Atlanta, second two seasons went to Kansas City, then Philadelphia, then Austin, and now New Orleans. Michael Williams, Scout Productions executive producer of the hit Netflix series, Queer Eye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Diane. Pleasure. This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Back in September, WYES-TV honored the monumental life of a living legend with the release of Dr. Norman C. Francis, A Legacy of Leadership. The one-hour documentary produced by journalist Tan Trong shares the story of the retired Xavier University president and civil rights leader. Last fall, we spoke to Trong about Francis's more than 70 years in leadership highlighted in the film. Today, we look back at that conversation. Tan, when you hear the name Dr. Norman Francis, what words immediately come to mind? I think longevity first comes to mind because ultimately when you take a look at the whole of his career at Xavier University, with serving 47 years as the president there, longevity hits you first. But when you dig deeper underneath the surface, you understand the complexities of the man that has been there, not only just for the length of time, but the quality of time as well. So longevity first, but as we named the documentary, A Legacy of Leadership, he leads both. I think when you take a look at his life, there's a legacy there and just the leadership qualities that he's brought at very, very important junctures in New Orleans history. This had to be a monumental assignment for you. How how does his seven-decade legacy of community service and leadership unfold in the documentary? The origin story to me is usually the most interesting. What are some of the pivotal moments? What are some of those first moments at a person's life that kind of formulate their understanding and their worldview and serve as the North Star. So we begin with some of the areas of his life, especially in Lafayette, just growing up as a boy in the segregated South and being a son of parents to their description, to the family's description by the Francis family. They only had a third grade education. 
So that sets him on this path to eventually become uh, a very, very recognized leader in the university system, in the HBCU system. So that is sort of the, the pivotal moment that we wanted to start with at the beginning. You know, what happened in some of the conditions that he grew up in that formulated his understanding of the world as a leader in the university system and the educational system, not just here in New Orleans, but really as an example for HBCUs throughout America. What were some of his major accomplishments at Xavier University? I think it was his understanding uh, in how he approached Xavier University that he blended faith. It's one of the, if not the only, black Catholic uh, university in the HBCU system. But he carved out a niche as well in understanding the, the pharmacy school and then staying in that lane, emphasizing the sciences, and eventually getting to a point where Xavier University was producing more black students going into medical school than any other college and university in America at the rate that they were. It's just amazing. Now, Xavier University was also his alma mater. Is there a story that you can tell us about his early days as a student? There is, and we hear it through Sybil Morial. She was the wife of former New Orleans Mayor Dutch Morial. She, too, was a Xavier University student. And she talks about first meeting Norman Francis as a freshman, and she called him a bookworm. <laughs> and I think that, you know, when we think of Norman Francis, we think of this person who is almost uh, a regal figure in, in the university system. He's polished. He's established as a person that has a lot of prominence and influence in the city. But when Sybil Morial met him, she called him a bookworm. And I, I think people won't get the sense of how human he was. And when he was the bookworm, fittingly, he earned a work scholarship to Xavier University and was working in the library system, repairing old books as a night supervisor, and eventually worked his way up into becoming class president of the, the freshman class, the sophomore class, and eventually, you know, capstoning and seeing him evolve into the president of the university is, is just quite fascinating. But who knew that a bookworm was going to be the president eventually? <laughs> Now, Dr. Francis was also an attorney and a civil rights leader. Can you tell us about some of his courageous moments then? He graduated as the first African-American student from Loyola University, uh, the law school there. But because it was segregated at the time, he wasn't allowed to stay on the campus, so he actually had to find boarding at Xavier University. You know, we're dealing with some very complex issues in a very segregated time. But coming out of that era and into the 1960s, when it was his time to kind of, quote unquote, take charge and take the reins of certain situations, there were sit-in protests at the McCrory's shop on Canal Street, where one of his students was arrested, Rudy Lombard. And Dr. Francis eventually walked in at the Orleans Parish Jail to bail him out. And Dr. Francis recalls the, the story in doing that. As a educational leader, he it was more his educational concerns about Rudy Lombard because he said, I have to get Rudy Lombard out of jail because he has to go to Cornell. And we, we found that just kind of humorous because here he's facing all these legal issues and, uh, you know, the, the, the racial injustice at the time. And he was able to kind of walk into the jail and bail out one of his students. And eventually that case went to the Supreme Court. Um, and was struck down and eventually laid the groundwork for some of the Jim Crow laws uh, throughout the South to be uh, dissolved. 
And from that point on, uh, there were other opportunities, most notably with the Freedom Riders when they needed shelter from an awful firebombing of their bus. Dr. Francis offered up one of the dormitories for 12 of the students to stay. Everywhere else, they were faced with threats. Uh, Dr. Francis stepped up and really solidified his stance and also the university's stance on racial justice and civil rights at that point. I think when you take a look through the documentary and see all these moments uh, that were really crucial in New Orleans history, Dr. Francis was often behind the scenes moving the pieces and getting the right people in the positions they needed to be to make things happen. He earned a lot of praise and was awarded the Presidential Freedom Medal. Yes, in 2006, and that was for his leadership, obviously for his time at Xavier University, but also as the co-chair and the, the leader of the Louisiana Recovery Authority for many of us who went through Katrina and also the after effects and the impacts of Hurricane Rita, which hit uh, a few weeks later after that. Louisiana was very much in a very difficult position and probably one of the most difficult rebuilding challenges uh, any other places faced in the last 50 to 60 years. Uh, but certainly at that time, Kathleen Blanco, who was the governor at the time, chose Dr. Francis to head up the Louisiana Recovery Authority, which oversaw the reconstruction of the uh, infrastructure and the homes and the communities that were damaged by both storms. And the praises just keep coming. He also has a street now named after him? Jefferson Davis Parkway was the name of the street that was there before it was Norman C. Francis Parkway. And I think that was very much a deliberate but also natural decision to take the name of a street that once represented the president of the Confederacy that really highlighted the divisions of the United States during the Civil War to a person who's dedicated his life into bridging a lot of the gaps between people. So I think that the naming of the street, Norman C. Francis Parkway, which we see today, is very poignant. And it's just awesome that he is still here to enjoy his roses. He is. We had a premiere a few nights ago, and we have to say we were a little bit nervous because (laughs) that is the, the toughest, but perhaps the most important audience is Dr. Francis and his family. And he said some very poignant words. So his words are very moving at the premiere. Journalist Tan Trong, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Diane, it is a great honor. Just happy to be here. Great to hear from you. In New Orleans, we are still remembering Moon Landrieu, who passed away last September at the age of 92. The former mayor is largely remembered as a civil rights icon who helped integrate the city government during a time of racial division. Today, we listen back to a conversation between Moon Landrieu and the historic New Orleans collection's Mark Cave about his decision to remove the Confederate flag from the city council chambers. Well, I had come to the conclusion segregation made no sense. It was contrary to Christian charity, contrary to my Catholic beliefs, contrary to what I'd been taught. I thought that I wanted to do some good in the world and I couldn't, I could never achieve what I hoped to achieve. I'm not talking about personal ambition. I'm talking about being in a position of some authority, power to achieve and make the world better. 
But I had a vision of what I thought I could do if I were mayor. I was close to the scene as a councilman at large. I was very deeply committed to trying to bring about some racial equality. The year was 1969. Former Mayor Moon Landrieu was 36 years old and an at-large member of the New Orleans City Council, full of social and racial justice theories, coming off six years of serving in the Louisiana House of Representatives. Local NAACP sent out a questionnaire. Do you think the Confederate flag should fly in the uh, council chamber? I went to the other councilman and said, look, I filled out this questionnaire this way. I want to get the flag out. I couldn't even get a second on the motion. Well, a year later, uh, Eddie Sapo got elected to city council. So Eddie said to me, he said, look, I, I want to get the flag out of the chamber. I said, boy, I've been waiting for you my whole life. So I recalled the council meeting. And I said, fellas, I'm asking you to do this thing. I said, we can do it the hard way, we can do the easy way. There was some grumbling, but uh, they eventually said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I got the cleaning crew with Mascaro's permission to uh, take the flag out of the chamber in the middle of the night, and nobody even noticed it till the next council meeting, when apparently somebody had been alerted to it on the White Citizens Council, some of Leander Perez's people, came to the council chamber and made an issue of it. And uh, it was quite a council meeting with at least one councilman denying that he had ever been a part of the, of the agreement to take it out of the chamber. <laughs> there was no question that he was part of the agreement. He kept asking me. He would walk in my office and say, is it gone yet? Is it gone yet? I said, don't worry about it. It'll be gone. He was very nervous about it. But apparently he was frightened to death of the political consequences and made it appear that he had no part in these meetings and wasn't there and so I called a recess and uh, said okay let's do it the hard way and uh, after much debate people trying to add things add flags to it and, but nobody wanted to they didn't want to face that issue head on and I noticed that just a year or two ago there's still some of the states fighting over the confederate flag I mean I to me get it come on it's not an issue worth tearing a community apart I mean it wasn't put there during the Civil War. It wasn't a commemoration of a battle that took place at City Hall where that flag is, like a monument. I think the flag, the thing was put in the council chambers in the 1940s, you know, because somebody decided to put it there. I still don't know who put it there. And I figured they put it there, I could take it out. I was mayor 40 years ago. I was in the legislature 50 years ago a long time. I've never been afraid to talk about race. I think we've got to talk about it uh, on both sides. It's not just a question today of slavery or Jim Crow. That's passed. The aftermath is not passed. The remnants is not passed. The harm is not passed. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, Executive Director of Queer Eye, Michael Williams, and journalist Tom Tron. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. 
And our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.